namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa aparutade sangamatasatavara So reflecting on this moment, Here and now the Dhamma Hall is filled with individuals, monks, lay people, men, women, and behind all the differences in form and in feeling and in emotion that is relevant to this particular moment. What is unitive is conscious awareness. So this is a reflective teaching. So we call it the silence behind the noise, the space where form manifests and disappears, And it's always here and now, wherever you are, whatever state of mind you're in, what kind of health your body may be in, whether you're male or female, space is always spacious. Conscious awareness is always here and now. And yet we don't notice, we don't tend to notice the space. We can, we tend to think that space is, is uh, in the room. I remember when we first established Amravati, we had a, a large uh, dining hall. It was previous a school, and it was the largest dining hall we had in England, because Chithurst's space was the, the meditation hall was, wasn't as big, couldn't accommodate a lot of people, and then Amravati, we had a large room, very spacious. But then the space, uh, we forget the Chitters, Amravati, Temple Forest Monastery are in the same space. The space is not, you can't own it or claim it, it's what we call natural. And it's always here and now. And consciousness, here and now. And then the forms, right now the room is filled with different forms and in the future all these forms will leave and the room will be empty, but the space is the same. So this is a way to reflect on 
on life, on the way life is, as we experience life. We are interested in practicing meditation. It's very popular now to think in terms of my meditation practice. And so the uh, meditation practice, what are we practicing for? What do we do when we, when we are meditating? Are you just attaching to forms, thoughts, views, opinions, physical feelings? Are you, you know, and just thinking of the past or the future, planning your next traveling event, or, or is your mind wandering off into various emotional states? Or are you aware of these emotional states or these thoughts? Or even the, the very thought, I'm practicing meditation. So meditation is a word that includes almost any kind of mental exercise. And so, you know, it's a, an English word that is generally used for all kinds of different techniques. And so in terms of like, years ago I was practicing yoga and it was to get physically fit out of yoga. So I practiced in order to become physically fit, not to realize Dhamma or be free from all delusions. And yet yoga ultimate purpose is liberation. The word yogi is actually a word for a meditator, one who realizes the path of liberation, the here and now, reality of here and now. And yet, when we take the word, the Sanskrit word into the English language, yoga becomes about fitness or personal appearance or health, practicing yoga for good health. <clears throat> So when we practice, are we practicing for good health or for liberation? So in, as I've referred to many times, Lumpo Cha in Thailand, he was always emphasizing that Wat Pong, the main monastery at that time, was a practice monastery. And he seemed to emphasize this, practice for practice. And they used the word butibut. He called it wat butibut. Wat is a Thai word for monastery or temple. So the um, this in emphasized because in Thailand so much of the Buddhism is scholastic, where you learn all about Buddhist teachings from scriptures, from teachers, from translations. Uh, you acquire a lot of 
knowledge about what the Buddha taught and uh, there's an enormous amount of literature available in different languages, different Buddhist traditions. Uh, and this is the scholastic form of Buddhism. And so one can acquire like PhDs and various attainments in scholastic achievement through, through uh, memorizing all the words and forming views and opinions and, and about Buddhism and about Theravada or Mahayana or whatever. <clears throat> but Lumpur Cha was not emphasizing Theravada, Mahayana or anything but Bhattibhata or practice. So just to ask yourself, why do you practice meditation? What do you, what is the aim of it? And this self-questioning is is a form of practice. And then you get various views, opinions about what right practice is, good practice, Buddhist practice. And there's so much now on the internet and YouTube and various teachers uh, giving advice on what's the right way to practice. And so we we tend to um, believe or disbelieve or get caught up in doubt or confusion because different techniques of practice, what the technique is a technique that is uh, used to direct our attention to the here reality of here and now. So like Anapanasati, which is a kind of basic uh, technique, being aware of the breath, and uh, is uh, because it brings us always to the here and now. So being aware of the breath, we, we, we form ideas about anapanasati and about attainment, personal attainments, about who's achieved stream entry or, or who's fully advanced or who isn't. Uh, and we form opinions about what others tell us or say about themselves. And we tend to believe or disbelieve what others say. But with investigation, we're actually observing. The previous talk I gave about the witness position, being aware of when somebody says something that tells you you're practicing all wrong. What is that like when somebody tells you that? How do you feel? if? Somebody says, your teacher isn't any good. <laughs> and so you, you, you know, and this is where, where, you know, direct insight practice is being aware of the emotional reaction, not trying to prove your teacher's right or actually believe it isn't any good, but it's like this or various views about religion. 
there's so much emphasis now in the United States about religion. Is the United States a Christian country? Is that, is that, how does that affect you when you hear that in the news? And so, you know, it's not to say it is or it isn't, but the view, it's a viewpoint that somebody holds. And what do we mean by a Christian country? Or we, we say that the United States is where there's complete religious freedom. How does that affect your, your emotional state of the present if somebody claims that Christianity is just one of the religions and the United States is a country with freedom of religion, freedom of belief. And this we can observe in this witnessing position, being the witness rather than one who's trying to prove various statements or belief systems are right or wrong. So this, we oftentimes refer to this as a direct path. Because Anapanasati, you know, I've known people who practice Anapanasati for years. And, and they get very tranquil. They can get very tranquil and peaceful. But they don't develop wisdom. They don't know the way things really are. They just observe that when I do my practice, I feel peaceful and tranquil. And I and I use it to relieve stress that I'm feeling due to the work I do or whatever excuse you might have. So it is true. Frown upon us, does lead to tranquility, peace. But then I remember in Thailand when I first started meditation in Bangkok when I was a layman they. They did a very, uh, this, uh, I learned at uh, one of the main old monasteries in Bangkok, Wat Mata, the, the Mahasi Sayadaw tradition, which is a very strict technique of watching the rise and fall of the belly, of the stomach. And so then I got very kind of, that's the direct way that the belly watchers and uh, the ones who contemplate the, no the nose, the nasal inhaling through the nose is not as effective and there are various opinions about that. So then at that time I just felt confusion because people said, you know, we're making these statements with great certainty and confidence and if you're unconfident, you don't know quite know what bhati bhata or practice really is. And then, you know, then various teachers or various techniques differ from each other and you, and your teacher or the one who's guiding you through these techniques, you know, you tend to believe them and, and then you get the results, if you're lucky, to uh, a, a tranquility and peace. 
to calm the, uh, the emotional state down, the stress of the body, the tendency to, to get caught in depressive thoughts or anxiety. So are we practicing just to deal with stress, emotional problems? So why, why do we practice meditation? So this is a question to ask yourself. I encourage you to do so. And you don't have to come up with an answer for the question. Just the question itself puts you in a state of not knowing, you're not certain. Or if you are certain, I practice to relieve stress, then you're aware that that is a temporary statement. I practice to relieve stress, comes and goes. And in stressful situations, I practice, my practice doesn't work because the situation is stressful in itself. So then one becomes very much determined to go off to a cave or a monastery or someplace where they, they can relax and they're not called upon to do stressful work. And so that, that can help, too. Relieve the stress by removing you phys yourself physically from a stressful situation. But it doesn't really solve the problem. Because in peaceful monasteries, uh, you can create stress. If you're a person who, who's trying to avoid stress and not observe it, then we become kind of like precious individuals. We have to have, you know, according to the way we don't feel stressed by life. So investigation is, is the second uh, factor of enlightenment, sati, is the first fact, which is mindfulness or awareness, conscious awareness. And then Tamavichai investigating reality the way it is. And the reality of each person right now, when they their body is their reality, their state of mind is their reality, their their vision of life, then that is your reality. The, the political views are the, for you the real world, or your religious identities are the real world. Your gender identities are your reality. But is that reality when it's, when it's subject to change? Is ultimate reality just conditioned phenomena changing? Is liberation, is enlightenment, where you you just uh, caught in the whirlpool of changing conditions that you can't help? You're just a helpless victim of, of samsara, of the cycles of birth and death caught in the whirlwheel, there's no way out. You know, and so this is a, the question, what is 
ultimate reality. So then we can call it God or Dhamma or we can, you know, make various beliefs in, uh, in various religions. They have different names for ultimate reality. But what is it if it's if there is God, if there is ultimate reality? When we take refuge in Dhamma, what is what are we taking refuge in? And so then, uh, these are questions to ask yourself. And when you ask yourself a question, your thinking mind stops for a moment. When you, and you can see yourself struggling to find the answer to the question, do you believe in God, or are you an atheist, are you a Buddhist? You know, is, are the, is Islam, is, it, is Allah a reality, or just another word that's made up by Muslims? So the question, what do we, when we talk about God, what do we mean by that? What is that in terms of the reality of here and now? So the constant identity with the forms, the physical body that we strongly identify with, that we socialize with, that we're with when we're sleeping alone, when we're in a battle, on a battlefield, when we're in a monastery. As long as our identity is just the assumed, it's an assumption that I am this body. It's conventional, it's a convention that we use. It's not that it's right or wrong, But is that really liberation to identify yourself with your appearance, with your gender, with your age, with the color of your skin, with your sexual inclinations, with your religion? Uh, is that an identity that is truly real, is reali real or is it a belief? So conditioning is very basic to our experience. You know, so when we're innocent yeah, babies, little young children, we're 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 the same consciousness as ultimate reality, but the body is human body in consciousness, but it's not conditioned yet. It's influenced by the form of the body. It has instinctual survival techniques. But it doesn't have an ego. It doesn't say, I am the body. And, and then you, then your mother tells you, you are the body. You're a boy or you're a girl or, and on and on like that. So you acquire knowledge about yourself 
through the cultural identities, social conditioning, what you get from what your parents tell you, what your nationality, religion tells you, you tend to, that's the conditioning process. So some of it's very good, some of it can be really bad or incorrect. But the basic illusion that I'm this limited form is to be questioned. Am I really just the, this physical form sitting here talking? Is that my reality? And then through investigation, meaning being the witness, not trying to figure whether my conditioning was good or bad, right or wrong, but conditioning is something you acquire. It's like being computer uh, programming on a computer. The computer doesn't have any views or opinions until you program it, put views and opinions into it. And so practice is what we call returning to the source, to that state of innocent awareness where you don't know anything. You're just wide open observer of the way it is. It's like this. So techniques, meditation techniques, and in the beginning, you know, when we take an interest in what we call meditation, can be very useful because, like on a panasati, at least it brings attention to what the body's doing here and now. Because then the bodies are breathing. When it stops breathing, that's dead. You can't be aware of dead, but you can be aware of breathing, inhaling is like this, whether it's at the nostrils or on the stomach, because that's the nature of a human body, it breathes. And in, and in its way, it brings us to the here and now, we're actually witnessing. And so, I remember reading the instructions on Anapanasati about knowing a short breath is like this, a long breath is like this, and, and then getting confused about whether I should breathe short breaths or long breaths. <laughs> because, you know, I want to do everything right and get, get enlightened quickly. <laughs> so, so I, you know, I could read the scriptures, uh, Pali scriptures or suttas, and misinterpret them very quickly because my mind was conditioned for thinking about it. Which is better, a long breath or a short breath? And is it, can you really get enlightened watching breathing through the nose? Or do you have to watch your belly rise and fall? And so the thinking process takes over. Is, is it, which is the better technique? 
and so uh, and then you may decide on one or you may just give up totally I was always interested in these Zen koans, the Zen tradition, because they deliberately use the questioning to stop the thinking mind. And when we think of what they call koans, you know, it's a form of investigation, not a form of belief. So they make up things that are totally unanswerable that you can't answer, there's no intelligent answer to the koan in terms of words or definition. So then, uh, then you know, this, this stops the thinking mind. So any question will stop the thinking mind. What am I meditating for? And then I can, you know, I can make up an answer. But when, when you ask yourself a question, it actually, you actually stop thinking. There's this blank silence. And then the point of the koan is to recognize the silence behind the nonsensical koan. Or like in the advice tradition, ask, who am I? What is it? What is it? And you ask yourself, who am I? is, is to, not to define yourself but to observe the absence the conscious, you're aware consciously of absence of not knowing is like this and so you, really, you begin to investigate that this not knowing. And yet we've been conditioned, our culture, Western civilization is determined to find answers to every question, solution, every problem. So, you know, you're educated, you have views and opinions, and, and so we, we want answers to the question. There should be an answer to the koan that defines, the, you know, the, the right answer. And then uh, Roche hits you with a bamboo stick if it's the wrong answer. Or whether it's the right answer or wrong answer, he hits you anyway. <laughs> because that's not the point of being right. Or being proved wrong. But of where right and wrong cease. And in that empty spaciousness, aware, conscious awareness doesn't cease. You're still fully conscious 
aware of not knowing, which is silence. So when I refer to the sound of silence, then people start trying to find a sound. So I remember one retreat I gave years ago at Amarvati, and this uh, woman, English woman, was absolutely fascinated by sound of, she wanted to find the sound of silence. And it was a 10-day retreat. So I watched her in the meditation hall, desperately trying to find it. And she'd sit there intensely concentrated, trying to get what she, to find the sound of silence. Because the word sound, it must be, you know, it must be a sound. And halfway through the street, she was ready to give up. She was exhausted. <laughs> she, she put so much effort into trying to find something that would prove that she, she knew the sound of silence. Towards the end of the retreat, she gave up completely and she began to notice <laughs> the silence behind the noise, behind all the efforts, all the self-involvement, all the views and opinions and fears that she could manifest when she gave up trying to get it. So, like, intuitive awareness is, is, uh, is natural. It's not a created technique. Sound of silence is not a technique. It's not a sound. And then, it's oftentimes referred to as cosmic pulse or cosmic vibration or whatever words you want to use. You know, and that point is, when you stop thinking, when there's a hiatus, a space where there's no, no thought, it's like this. And then you have the insight into, this is the path. The path isn't, it's not a real path even. It's just a convenient word. So then, in my own experience, being aware of this silence, I, it didn't seem like anything, it was kind of a disappointment because my view of insight and enlightenment was built on ideas that I read about in books. The, when the Buddha was enlightened, the, the world system shook and David does cheered in the heavens, and and that wasn't happening. <laughs> so, so it seemed even boring. But then the the kind of realizing that there's nothing that if I create anything, no matter how superlative it, I can create ideas or 
conditions in my mind that no matter how high and beautiful and true and absolute they might seem, that they that all these ideas, ideals, assumptions come and go, they change. And so the Buddhist direct teaching is all conditions are impermanent. So the tranquility I could attain through concentration on the breath, you know, I began to see was very dependent on conditions. That as soon as I was put into a difficult situation, you know, there was no tranquility, there was just reaction. And what was the witness position then? Being stressed is like this, being upset, being disappointed. It's all grist for the mill. It can be path knowledge or one can be lost in, in just trying to get rid of negative feelings or trying to hold on to them. But what you can really trust is a wisdom, awareness, with awareness, conscious awareness allows. And that's what the Buddha is pointing to in his teaching. The Buddha's teachings are pointers at reality, not telling us what ultimate reality is, what is dumb, what is Dhamma anyway. We call it absolute reality, ultimate reality. These are English words. But what is real about awareness? Because you know, if you don't, if you're not being aware of being aware, then your awareness is always directed at objects, at feelings, making value judgments about right and wrong, good and bad, true and false. So as long as you look for answers to questions, solutions to problems, You know, we can do that in, in worldly situations because the world is like this. It's a changing condition. There is right and wrong in terms of action and speech and, and uh, you know, all kinds of true and false conditions. Conditions can be true or false, good or bad, right or wrong, high or low, heaven or hell. <coughs> That's the conditioned realm that we call reality. And so we, you know, if we end up with just that, just believing in reality as a world that we experience through the sensual senses of our body, through the body itself, you know, then we're not really, pra we're practicing a technique or maybe a belief system that might be considered right. But until you have that confidence of awareness, conscious awareness here and now, 
And it's like not knowing, because consciousness doesn't know. It's silent. And then we, we, we're conditioned to make value judgments about ourselves, about our society, about the world that we experience through, through the senses. But the senses are very unstable. <coughs> So in the silence, behind the noise, the space between the words, the non-thought, by asking ourselves a, a question, is, you know, what is that? And when we try to think of it and define it according to the way we're conditioned to think, and what we expect enlightenment to be and insight and all the rest, then we, we bypass it because it doesn't seem like anything. The world doesn't shake where the devas at the time you're in that empty space of unknowing. But then as you begin to abide in the silence behind the noise, your refuge is in the silence, not in the words and the scriptures, but in the silence behind the words. When we take refuge in Dhamma, this is what we're taking refuge in, in conscious awareness, in wisdom, So then, uh, this is, and in Theravada Buddhism, we use the, the word Dhamma for that rea ultimate reality, which you can't define. You have the Dhammas, the conditions that change are Dhammas that arise and cease in the Dhamma. So they're not like separate from Dhamma, but all conditions as we begin to accept them for what they are, then they, and patiently allow them to arise and cease, or what has arisen to let it cease. All these thoughts, fears, anxieties, stress, all the problems, All the questions cease in the in the Dhamma, in ultimate reality. And we call that Naroda or the end of suffering. So then investigating, you know, when you begin to trust, you know, in the silence behind the noise. You know, you, you're, stopped, you're not thinking anymore. You're just aware. And there's no suffering in that awareness. It's the end of it. Then somebody comes and says, Oh, just tomato, there's a crisis in the monastery. <laughs> and, and then, Yeah, John Tomato, 
can arise. <laughs> but that's not the path, is it? It's not about solving all crises and problems of the world, of the family, of the monastery, monastic forms, but but they're, they're useful conditions because if you allow them, they'll take you to Naroda, to the end of suffering. So when the Buddha talked about the end of suffering, it's apparent here and now, in the silence, there's no suffering. When we get caught up with the conditioned realm, the way we think and feel and believe, then there's endless problems and many questions and doubts and fears arise because that's the nature of what we call samsara or the endless cycles of change. But are you really just a helpless victim in samsara? You know, as a physical form, you know, inevitably you're going to get old, get sick and die. And we all have to experience the loss of loved ones in a lifetime. Part of developing, isn't it, to see our parents grow old, get sick and die. To feel disappointment when we feel betrayed by friends or you know, whatever happens to us, it doesn't mean that you escape all the, condi the conditioning that, you're, that you've let go of. It still operates, the body still grows old, gets sick and dies, but we don't create suffering. Because the body, when it dies, that's what dies. The bodies are programmed to die. They're supposed to die because they were born. So as long as we identify with the body, then, you know, there's always this fear of death. It's the unknown. Do we have a soul that, that lasts forever? We can make, make up belief systems about an eternal soul, my individual soul and God and my soul and where does the soul go when, when somebody dies? And so, you know, we can go on endlessly. There are all kinds of beliefs in Buddhism too. Uh, what happens when somebody dies and we can believe or disbelieve it. But wisdom allows us to see that we don't know. And that's the answer. The peace that is natural behind the, the samsaric conditions that are changing. So in Thailand there, somebody dies and they that's what happened. Where did my mother go when she passed away? And the 
some monks will say she went to Dawadingsa heaven. There's some there's different heavens you go to, and uh, so that's a that's a comforting thought to believe if you love your mother. But that's what it is in the present moment. You you don't know, and not knowing is peaceful. Then the known is all about change. Political systems change, religions change. People believe that the United States is a Christian country, that's a belief. That's not ultimate reality. About racial superiority, that's a belief. And all these other problems with race, with gender, and on and on like this that we create with the thinking mind. Are they right or wrong? You know, some believe they're wrong or they're right or they should be addressed or they're unimportant, they're making up problems about their lives and we form different reactions of believing or disbelieving or dismissing. But do we really know what is, is right absolute? Is there an absolute righteousness that we can find through meditation? And so righteousness is one of the problems of religion. You get very righteous. Ajahn Soko is reading me a book about the time of uh, Catherine Parr, the sixth wife of Henry VIII, in London, where there's all kinds of controversy around whether the bread and wine is actually, the bread actually is the actual flesh of Jesus and the wine the actual blood, or whether you don't believe that. And in the, one of the chapters, they burn six people because they don't believe that wafer is the actual flesh of Jesus. And that's what they were. <laughs> that's a life and death matter. <laughs> And it was only, you know, in the 1600s, 1500s, and uh, over whether a, a piece of bread and wine could be transmuted into the actual flesh and blood of Jesus. And if you didn't believe that, you were a heretic. And you could be burned at the stake. So at least we're, we've gone beyond that. Hopefully. <laughs> but we still get caught in, in you know, that, that my religion is the right religion, the true religion. And, you know, even Buddhists, we, become, we can become conceited about being Buddhists. But even that is, can be witnessed to, you know, as you feel that Buddhism is better than Christianity. It's a thought that arises in consciousness. 
And that's the way it is. It arises and ceases. <clears throat> and if you grasp that, if you grasp that Buddhism is better than Christianity, then you don't notice the silence behind the noise of the word Buddhist or Christian. You've taken sides. You're making a stand on a, for a con for an illusory conditioned experience. So that can't be the end of suffering. It just gives you a sense of being right, and someone who disagrees with you is wrong. Then you, they become your enemy. So then, actually, where does right and wrong cease? in the silence behind the noise of those words is like this. And that's the end of suffering. And as you begin to treasure this ability within these very conditioned forms that we identify with, what you consider the real world and what your family or your society regard as reality, suddenly you, you're no longer bound into the limitations of beliefs, taking sides, condemning or praising, right and wrong. And this is peaceful, to be at peace with, with the conditions as they, their nature is to whatever arises must cease. And that's a very clear teaching that I've used throughout my monastic life in teaching, trying to emphasize the importance of sapeh all conditions are impermanent. Because in the way I was conditioned culturally, that was not part of the conditioning. Some conditions were permanent, others were not. Like heaven was permanent, even though I didn't know what it was. Heaven sounded like heaven, like wonderful. And that's what creates the, so attachment to the, I want, when I die, I'll go to heaven. Then there's the doubt, well, I've committed sins, maybe I won't go, maybe I'll be go to some kind of purgatory or hell even because I was unfaithful or I drank too much or something wrong with me and so you know when you believe in heaven then there's also the doubt about it about yourself because we are these conditions that we identify with are very imperfect you know they they're changing conditions. You can't be a real saint, you know, never making a mistake, never telling a lie, being absolutely right from birth to death. That's an ideal, but that's not the way life is. And so we learn from our mistakes, from our sins or whatever we imagine as conditions that arise and cease rather than as personal identities or doubts about our life and what happens when we die. 
So practice, meditation, the Pali word bhavana, bhavana is uh, the Pali word for meditation. And bhavana is really, in terms of uh, scriptural authority, the, what, what we're using. We're actually taking the position of the witness, the puto, the Buddha observing the way things are. And at first, the way things are is that we, we're aware of the endless, relentless changingness of what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think. Experience is through the senses. So we experience life through the senses. So then we have good experiences or bad experiences. We experience old age, sickness, COVID, pandemic, fears, and climate change is another condition that creates doubt and fear that we believe or we disbelieve in. But whether you believe or disbelieve, you don't really know. But if you believe in climate change, then you become very, you, your enemies are those that are anti-climate change. So you create this division. So you create enemies, those who are against the idea of climate change. And this is used in political reasoning in the present day. But climate is changing, because <laughs> that's its nature. <laughs> so, so it's not a matter of, it's more witnessing change is like this and taking a, a political view of whether it, there is climate change or not. So trusting in this awareness is, a, is, a, is a practice, learning to trust in awareness, in your own awareness, not in what I say or other teachers say, but in beginning to recognize the solution to the world is here and now, ever-present, available through conscious awareness, being uh, aware of the changingness of what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think and feel. So I offer this as a reflection 